Welcome to the New Flash Podcast. Ricky here with another New Flash replay. Once a month, we open up the vaults of the podcast to bring you an important episode that you may have missed. This month, we bring you Wilfred Riley from April 2022. Wilfred is an Associate Professor of Political Science at Kentucky State University. He is the author of two books, Hate Crime Hoax and Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About. An entertaining and rollicking interview, we covered the Justice Smollett case and the increasing trend of hate crime hoaxes in the US, as well as BLM and the defund the police movement. In addition to being a highly entertaining interview, talking to Wilfred made us see the ridiculousness of the systemic racism narrative thrown around by certain sections of the US elite. This interview gave us hope that racial tensions in the US will simmer down through highlighting the hilarious absurdity of the hate crime hoax phenomenon. Please share this podcast with your friends and family and follow us on X and Instagram, as well as subscribing to our YouTube channel. And if you're feeling generous, you can leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. All reviews are very much appreciated. And now, here's our replay of Wilfred Riley. Black Lives Matter just bought a $6.5 million mansion. Um, And this came to light because of a bunch of embarrassing details. They apparently didn't tell anyone about it. Um, they bought it in cash. The payment, which is to a close friend of the group, is something like 157% the normal valuation of the house, which is indicative of money laundering and so on. So it's just this sort of stuff kept coming up. Colors has said that talking about that is racism. Well, but I mean, that's, it's like squidding, right? I mean, that's the response to anything. Like, well, they're always going to say that a black woman buying five mansions is, you know, like, this is something <laughs> like the fifth of these houses. I mean, my God, like, I'm doing pretty well. I'm looking for my first big house. And I like this. She bought the cheapest house she's bought is uh, 550000 in what's becoming an upper middle class black district in Inglewood. Welcome to the New Flesh podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Jonathan Astro, and with me is the spectacular Ricky Orpike. Hi there, Jonathan. Uh, we've got a big guest today. We've brought out the big guns for you. Well, Wilfred Riley's in the house. Yes. Well, let's, let's get into it. Let's do it. Wilfred Riley is an Associate Professor of Political Science at Kentucky State University. He's a political scientist and holds a PhD in political science from Southern Illinois University and a law degree from the University of Illinois. Uh, He's the author of two books, Hate Crime Hoax and Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About. He uses data to challenge widely held beliefs in the political and media landscape. He's prolific, unafraid, and he's here with us today. Welcome, Wilfred, to the New Flesh. Great to be on. So, Wilfred, let's just get straight into it. uh, Jussie Smollett has released a new single from prison. Here's some lyrics for you. You think I'm stupid enough to kill my reputation? Thank you, God, for showing me my enemies. Uh, It's like they're hell-bent on not solving the crime, taking out the elements of race, trans, and homophobia that's straight killing people, but turn around and act like I'm the one who killed the strides. I can't be mad. Take my ego out. Some people seeking fame. Some people chasing that clout. Just remember this. This ain't that situation. You think I'm stupid enough to murder my reputation just to look like a victim, like it's fun. You'll better look at someone else. You got the wrong one. Celebrities for the birds. So based on what you've heard here, does, does he have bars? Okay, that wasn't the question I thought you were going to lead with, but no, he does not have bars. <laughs> His music is straight ass cheeks. I've listened to Jussie Smollett before, actually, and uh He's one of those sort of semi-talented guys that exists in that pop celebrity space. Um, no. Yeah, no, I mean, my, my favorite, I mean, MC is Nas. So he's not, he's not in the, the league of my top 
50 guys. Okay, all right. Well, look, yeah, he's not, that he doesn't quite have that boom bap sort of thing going on, but I, t- I wanted it to be a bit more like hit him up, like, you know, where maybe even you get a mention, like in, as one of the haters, you know what I mean? Like, that would have been nice. I feel like he could have done that. Uh, yeah. Almost any off the head. I'm not a man. I'm a Nephilim. My heart is blacker than the children of Jefferson. Like anyone who <laughs> freestyles at all could come up with better bars than that. Just off the top of the head. Um, the, at any rate, I don't, I don't really have a lot of comments on his musical ability, but the thing about Jussie Smollett, that's really remarkable. Actually, I think immortal technique said something similar to what I just did there. I don't, I don't want to bite him. I took at least one of his words, but anyway, um, the, The thing about Jussie Smollett that's really remarkable isn't the rather poor quality of his music. It's the fact that this is still going on three years later, right? And I think this really illustrates some powerful trends in our society in terms of the cosseting and coddling of self-professed victims. I mean, like, we know he did it. There's a check written in his hand to these bodybuilder African guys that confessed under police questioning that they faked the beating, which, if I recall, is on camera. There's another videotape of these guys, the Nigerian Olsendario brothers, going into an army surplus store and buying like ski masks, red hats, all of this other stuff. I mean, there's absolutely no doubt. I mean, you've got two signed confessions. I think they almost got Smollett on another one, although he, he fell back and started saying he never even partly responsible for this. But there, there's no doubt of what happened here. The remarkable thing is that I think Jesse Smollett is an intelligent guy. He's probably mildly sociopathic, like many successful men. And so he's realized that in the current racial reckoning environment, you can say absolute nonsense and it's going to be reported on very sympathetically in the media. And a lot of people are going to believe it. And that's just with, like one more sentence here. But I mean, I think that's the that's the theme that's gone through all of these racial cases. Uh, I mean, almost all of my black buddies believe that Kyle Rittenhouse was a white supremacist that had shot three black people. It turns out that he's a working class, comfortable with all ethnic groups, white kid from like Kenosha, one of those mid-sized Midwestern cities. He says he supports Black Lives Matter. He apparently did fine in county jail. He's in there playing spades. The entire narrative was a lie. And you've seen this even, even in situations that are pretty sympathetic, where there is evidence of racism, like the Ahmed Arbery case. The initial storyline, which was that a Black man was out jogging in a tough white neighborhood, he was unprovokedly shot for no reason, turns out to be complete garbage. I mean, what, what actually happened was that a group of local men had been discussing who this burglar, or potential burglar, that had been caught on camera inside buildings and new builds five or six times might be. And they decided whether accurately or not that this this was Arbery and that prompted them chasing him, you know, a confrontation, him trying to defend himself and him getting shot. So I think any intelligent person that's watched U.S. mass media coverage of this stuff from kind of a cynical upper middle class, Jesse Smollett obviously knows how to construct a plot perspective, has kind of figured, okay, there's actually an out for me here. There's a way for me to save my career here because of how I know this will be taken, because of how I know this will be received. So I, I think that's what he's doing. Uh, Wilfred, we we will get into all of this in great detail. And let's just park Jussie and those great comments about racial narratives. Uh, perhaps what, let's let's start a little bit more uh, in the everyday, just as by way of introduction. But we, I understand we did derail you by, by bringing you Jussie's um, uh, <laughs> glorious lyrics. So uh, you live and work in K- Kentucky. So we have Firstly, we have to talk about this. What What is that part of the country like? Because we hear nothing about it on the news. I don't think the New York Times has ever printed the words Kentucky. 
full, at least unless they were followed by something like white trash opiate epidemic. I mean, I don't think there've been any reviews of the Louisville Met Opera or something like that. <laughs> I actually had a conversation about this with a businessman, uh, like most men who used to be athletes in real sports, I'm now an occasional golfer. And I was out on the out on the course once with a guy, this businessman from Louisville owns a small construction company. We we're just out on the track. And he said, you know, there's never been a movie filmed in Louisville, pronounced Louisville. And Louisville is a city of maybe two million people, maybe three million, uh, counting the surrounding suburban metro. I'm sure there's some sort of tax dodge where the core of the city is 800,000 or something like that. But it's quite a large metro area. I mean, we're probably the next American city that'd be in the line for an NBA team, for example, or looking at soccer franchises. I don't, I don't have an extraordinary amount of civic pride, but I mean, a good sized city, a little smaller in Boston. And it was just one of those remarkable comments. And I said, well, never. And the guy said, well, no, there's been one movie, Elizabethtown or E-Town that was found in one of the mid-sized Kentucky cities. And that's it. Unless you're counting like the Beverly Hillbillies or something like that. And I, I think that's very indicative of an attitude that a lot of Americans have which is that the true cultural life of the country takes place on the two coasts and maybe in Chicago or a bit down the coast in DC. Um, and I think to some extent that's true. If you're looking for Harvard or Yale or even the University of Chicago, the Claremont Colleges, UCLA, that's where those will be located. But it's also true that the huge majority of the people in the country live in areas of roughly equal sophistication, as much as I dislike that word, in other places, in Cincinnati, Louisville, Indianapolis, Columbus. People aren't running down the street, you know, hunting Okapi with spears. So it is there is this amusing disconnect from what almost everyone in the country thinks on the part of a large number of the people that are in, quote unquote, discursive institutions that go into media, which is very New York based, uh, the Hollywood sphere, which is obviously very L.A. based, so on down the line. So I, I do think that's interesting. What is Kentucky like? Well, I mean, there are really two Kentuckys. I mean, the, the two cities that I've owned property in or I've, I've lived in apartments in are Frankfurt, which is the state capital, and uh, Louisville, although kind of the outskirts there. Uh, and those are both just regular urban areas. Frankfurt, Lexington, Louisville, and the larger Cincinnati suburbs like Covington are all located within about a one-hour drive of one another. And these are all major metropolitan areas, although Frankfurt's the smallest. So, I mean, many of my friends live in you know, condos in downtown Lexington. So what's that like? It's like living in any other city below maybe the New York size, um, Albany or Las Vegas or something like that. The rest of the state of Kentucky, though, once you go east, I guess, of this sort of urban bubble is the Appalachian Mountains to some extent. I mean, that's that's the eastern third of the state. So they're, they're very different cultures in the region. I mean, there, there's the urban, you know, golden triangle. There's a little to the east of that. There's horse farm and country. And I mean, obviously, some of the best racehorses in the world come from Kentucky as well as some of the best whiskey. And then there really are the mountains that reach half as high as the Rockies that have, you know, people living in often conditions of significant poverty and the hollers. So a lot going on. Depend, depends on the uh, the level of elevation, really, what you're, what you're going to be seeing. Well, we hear a lot about woke, the woke excesses of universities. Uh, USC Berkeley comes to mind, but presumably there are places like your Kentucky State that haven't been totally overrun by wokesters. What's being missed by people in the laptop class in DC or New York or LA is that the Kentucky States are in the massive majority. I mean, again, Kentucky State is located in the downtown of the capital city and is a historically black college. So it's not some small outlier institution. I think if you went to virtually any of the quote-unquote A&Ms, the agricultural and mechanical colleges that traditionally taught engineering and the like, 
the military schools, the Citadel, West Point, Navy, um, the HBCUs or the tribal colleges, certainly something like community colleges, you'd probably find essentially normal, you know, left of mainstream, but not by much attitudes among the faculty and students. So again, I think that that one urban upper middle class corridor that provides a lot of the journalists and thinkers and so on in the country includes a lot of the colleges that are likely to be crazily extreme. Um, whether you're talking about at the upper end there, something like Bowdoin or Oberlin, down to, I mean, the obvious examples from, you know, NYU to UC Berkeley, Claremont Colleges, like all of that stuff is, I think, fairly non-representative, actually. There's something like 5,000 colleges in the USA. So I, I don't know whether this is good. Well, I mean, obviously, it's good for me. Um, I don't know whether it's good or bad in terms of correlation with intellectual productivity. But at K-State, most people seem pretty interested in coming in and you know, getting their degree as a nurse or a cop or a teacher or whatever, and then just going out and, and working. So we, we don't have a sizable campus protest sector as of yet. Well, there was a, fant a, a, a such an interesting comment you made in, in a conversation, the first conversation you had with Glenn Lowry, which I, I recommend everyone to watch. It, it, it's, it, for me, watching this video, it was like a John Woo action scene beautifully like like a, a ballet of two intellectual uh minds and um you made this comment you said about about uh kentucky state uh, that one of the features of going to an all-black university is that when these some of these questions come up that we talk about that people can just have the conversation or or, or speak openly and there's the what's what's missing is this sort of miasma of 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 white guilt <laughs> out of these conversations is that does that hold true well yeah i, I think so i mean just as, as kind of a one sentence reply like if you're at a black institution and it's pretty good it's a top 300 or whatnot college i mean it's a state university um and everyone that's on the leadership team there and a reasonably serious role is black i mean our last four presidents certainly have been black it it's hard to to blame the white man for issues. I mean, we have had some financial uh, questions recently. We had a president recently leave, but all of that it it's sort of understood that racism plays no role. So if you have either a competent or incompetent all black executive team, I mean, you just have to judge those people as individuals, and that's that. I mean, so the in the HBCU sector. One of the things that I find really fascinating, and I'm I'm a fan of both traditional integration and if people choose without violating the rules, kind of selective group affiliation, I have no problem with HBCUs. But within the HBCU sector, one of the things that's really pretty interesting is that we produce a really disproportionate number of the country's Black, for example, STEM graduates, quants, doctors, PhDs. And that's not just Kentucky State. And we're not even at the top of that list. I mean, like Morehouse, Howard, there are schools that frankly do rank higher. That's something that's characteristic of all historically Black colleges. And I think one reason for that is that there's no way to make excuses for the Black kids. Like, we're, we're certainly not racist. We admit whites if they apply. But I mean, if the school's 70% Black and the valedictorian's Black and the engineering professor's Black, you can't say, well, it feels like there's, there's a lot of whiteness in this room or any of this made-up nonsense. You know, it feels like, it feels like you're... The, the, the focus on math feels really white to me. Is there a lot of whiteness in this room right now, Wilfred? Or? <laughs> but I don't, I don't see color, bro. I mean, no, <laughs> like it, it, the whole idea, of course, is just nonsensical. First of all, you guys are Australian. Um, I, I have no idea whether something like Australian working class culture, although I don't, I don't judge you, know, you guys class level at home or care, but I have no idea whether that would be perceived as black or white in American terms. It actually might be seen as very black. I mean, all the 
the beer drinking and you know boasting <laughs> and so on from everything everyone I've met from that that group. So I don't I don't think those words have any meaning. I don't I don't think that like the Smithsonian Institution recently they published a list of the characteristics of white culture. And I was reading through this, and one of my first questions was, did the Klan write this? It's literally, <laughs> whites and blacks are just brutally stereotyped. So blacks, one of their, our traits was good athletes. Whites, their characteristic is being on time. And I mean, it's just, <laughs> just the most blatant kind of, you see a lot of this with gender too, but just group stereotyping. In general, I don't think if you took a bunch of whites or a bunch of blacks, I think the overlap would be something like 75%. I don't think there'd be that many characteristics, at least within, you know, countrymen, people from the same region, the same country that you, you could identify as white or black. So the whole thing is strikes me as nonsensical. Uh, your book, Taboo, which I urge everyone to read, uh, is the best kind of political science writing. It's accessible, lively and dangerous. Would you mind telling us about about that book? It's a great plug. I mean, I'm pretty good at the computer. I'm going to clip that and play it on Twitter a couple times a day. <laughs> the best kind of political science writing, both accessible <laughs> and dangerous. Um, no, Taboo is a book that began with a specific idea. So both of my books have kind of a theme. A hate crime hoax, the theme is almost so facially obvious that I, I blush to list it out. But essentially, it's just why do so many of these high profile racial conflict cases on the left and the hard right turn out to be complete bullshit? And I mean, I, I won't do the full list, which I can do for about five minutes, even now, a year after the promo tour. But I mean, like Jussie Smollett, Covington Catholic, Erica Thomas, Air Force Academy, where a general you know, had to show up and talk to the students about racial comedy. But the D.C. dreadlock cutting case, the Grand Rapids situation where beautiful young black girls said she was literally urinated on, the Nikki Jolly anti-trans house fire, the burnt black churches, at least we're talking Hopewell, so on down the line, Duke Lacrosse, uh, Tawana Brawley, all these turned out to be complete made up lies. And that seems to be very, very common among, again, specifically the high profile cases. Why? So that was that book. And I look at the power that we've granted to victimization in this country at this time. And I think really throughout the Anglosphere, if you look at some of the stories I'm seeing, not so much from Australia, but from Britain, certainly UK, from Canada. Um, that's the first book. The second book, Taboo, what I do is look at 10 of the most prominent media narratives in a moment in time, like 2018, 2019. And it's very easy to find out what those were with Google, Google Scholar, JSTOR, so on down the line. And then kind of analyze how much the mainstream center-left media narrative in the USA, to a secondary extent, UK, matched reality. And what I found was that it didn't match reality at all. I mean, in the Black Lives Matter case, this is chapter one, kind of the teaser. But I mean, you know, the claim was that, that frankly, hundreds or thousands of unarmed Black men, I think it's fair to say, were being murdered by the police every year. So Chernobyl went on primetime Fox News, that's the craziest example I always give, and said that at least once a day, a totally innocent black man is murdered by the cops. Uh, ben Crump, well-known attorney, wrote a prominent book, uh, Open Season, The Legalized Genocide of Colored People, arguing that this was more prevalent, it was constant. You know, you're talking about thousands every year killed in, he's a little awkward in his writing style, but I'm guessing police violence, vigilante violence. And... What I found when I started looking is that the total number of people shot by the police in the USA every year, fatally shot, is about 1,000. Uh, in the representative year I use in the book, 2015, uh, exactly 258 of those people were identified as Black. And the total number of unarmed Black people that were shot by white cops was 17. 
And that's been very consistent over the years. Last year, the total number of unarmed Black people shot by white or Black cops was 18. So Taboo is a book that's based around the idea of looking at these narratives that are panicking people from uh, police violence against Blacks to interracial crime on both sides, systemic racism, some of the claims of the alt-right sweeping tides of unassimilable immigrants. That was the one chapter where I kind of swung left. But looking at them and testing their validity and their consistency, and what I find is that there's almost no validity or consistency. Uh, a lot of these were just wrong. And that was especially true of the prominent left-wing narratives. So you mentioned narratives. Now, that first taboo obvious fact that you go into is that police aren't murdering Black people. So is this fact known by the various people and organizations pushing the counter narrative? So the New York Times, the pre-offended Hannah Nicole Jones, BLM, Joy Reid, Candy, all the celebrities in that black and white, I take responsibility video, corporations like Nike. Look, and, and all of these people went really hard on this issue, really, really hard. So if the facts say something different, isn't it fair to say, now this is this is a lot of smoke, but that they've signed up because they're either lying, ignorant, or they've done it for cash? Well, this is the whole, I mean, this is the classic political science question, evil or ignorant. Um, and I, I think it's a fascinating question across genres. Uh, I think more ignorant outside of a very few manipulators at the top end. I have my real questions about the actual leadership of Black Lives Matter, for example, uh, BLM, GNF, for example, Black Lives Matter, Global and National Foundation, I believe would be the abbreviation. But that's Colors and all of those people. And I mean, Black Lives Matter during the course of the past two years, the, the major consolidated organizations received something close to $11 billion. BLM, GNF, according to my own reporting and that from numerous other people, received about 90 million. And they spent more than 30 million of it. And per my read, almost none of it, very little of it, went to black causes at the street level. A lot of it went to transgender rights organizations, interestingly enough. When you look at that profile of like a working class, black or white, often male donor, I think a lot of people would be outraged, frankly, at how the money was spent. I mean, actually, I've got the article here. I'm going to take one second and pull it up. BLM's missing billions. Why are they so why are they so convinced that black people, the average black person is obsessed with with transgenderism? Well, I don't think that anyone could possibly believe that. I mean, the average black person, not that this is good, but it's slightly more homophobic than the average white person. And that's saying something in the southern USA. Now, I'm not I'm not a homophobe at all, really. But I mean, this sort of I mean, I'll, I'll just get into this. The list of organizations to which BLM, GNF, and I think I was the first kind of mainstream academic or journalist to point this out without tooting my own horn. It's in the damn charitable report. But the list of organizations to which BLM, GNF pledged at least a six-figure six figure grant includes Trans United, the Audre Lorde Project for Trans Justice, Black Trans Circles, the Transgender District, the Black Trans Travel Fund, the Okra Project, For the Guarals, the Trans Justice Funding Project, the Trans Housing Coalition's Homeless Black Trans Women Fund, Black Trans Media, and the Black Trans Fems in the Arts. So you can support or oppose that particular cause, you know, broadening of the definition of gender and the laws and all that, but still recognize that we're talking about tens of millions of dollars here that really, they didn't go into Black communities. And by the way, they didn't go to poor white communities. They went into these very specific niche gay rights causes. So I guess my core point is I'm I'm genuinely very skeptical about the leadership of that national organization. 
Um, you And you just keep seeing these embarrassing stories. I mean, I was a businessman before I became an academic. And there are a lot of things you just don't do, I guess would be the word. Optical questions. I mean, so whether or not this was legal, Black Lives Matter just bought a $6.5 million mansion. Um, and th this came to light because of a bunch of embarrassing details. They apparently didn't tell anyone about it. Um, they bought it in cash. The payment, which is to a close friend of the group, is something like 157% the normal valuation of the house, which is indicative of money laundering and so on. So it's just this sort of stuff kept coming up. The Colors has said that talking about that is racism. Well, but I mean, that's it's like squidding, right? I mean, that's the response to anything like, well, they're always going to say that a black woman buying five mansions is, you know, like this is the, <laughs> something like the fifth of these houses. I mean, my God, like I'm doing pretty well. I'm looking for my first big house. You know, like this, she bought the cheapest house she's bought is uh, 550000 in what's becoming an upper middle class black district in Inglewood. All the rest were much more expensive and were in these exclusive all white areas. So, I mean, she's got this $6.5 million house, which is jokingly known as campus around BLM, apparently. She's got a $1.2 million house that has its own airplane and helicopter landing pads. So, I mean, when you look at stuff like this, like this, this seems to be, my lawyers have advised me to say, old school municipal style corruption. Like where you give people money and they take a bag of money and they go buy a big house. Like, I mean, that is <laughs> that is something that happened. That's, that's but I love it though. That's as an American as apple pie, surely. But but uh, but I think that we should we should talk about BLM because this organization has dominated the cultural stage for years now, and it and it seems that several of the, the of the taboo facts you talk about in your book, if they were widely accepted, would reveal this group to be almost entirely built on on lies at worst and buffoonery at best. Uh, is it fair to say that uh, BLM, the organization, is, is is it much at war with truth as Donald Trump was, if you if you buy that? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think so. This is there are two things here. So first of all, your, bro your broader question I didn't really answer before. Is it evil or stupidity? And I said, well, in the case of the elite leaders of the black charitable sector, as someone from the business world, I, I have my question. Um, for most of these people, I, I do think a lot of it's just ignorance. You're talking about the celebrities and these widely released videos or even graduate student kindy readers. Uh, and the reason I think this is, is the hard data. I mean, Skeptic Research Center recently conducted a well-done large-end study. Um, at least 500 respondents, I think considerably more than that, because obviously I had multiple questions. But they asked people how many unarmed Black people they thought were killed annually by the police. And the figures I've seen for people who identify as just standard, very liberals, not even leftists, although certainly left of center, in the USA were some of the most staggering data I've, I've ever witnessed. Um, as I recall, 34 to 35% of people in the, the VL, the very liberal category, thought that the number of unarmed black men killed by cops every year was about 1,000. 15% um, thought it was about 10,000. And 8% thought it was more than that. Now, to put that in context, there are only about 20,000 murders in the USA in a typical year, a bad year at that. Black people do, because we're a younger, poorer group, have an elevated crime rate. We need to stop making excuses about that. But we're responsible for maybe half of those. So if you're saying there are 10,000 police murders of black people in a year, that's more than the actual number of murders of black people in a year. So, I mean, many people believe this sort of complete nonsense and they believe it utterly. And yeah, I, I don't think those people are kidding. I don't think those celebrities weeping on video chanting George Floyd are, are just making it up. Um, if anything, they're giving their time for free. 
But this ties into your second question, which is, isn't this nonsense? Isn't this as stupid as anything or as inaccurate as anything that Trump says or QAnon says? The answer is absolutely yes. Um, I think, yeah, and you're now starting to see that kind of witty right wing internet have an effect here, like the term blue anon recently made its way into some of the dictionaries, these radical conspiracy theories, like white man's putting AIDS in the chicken nuggets, but uh, 25, 25% of people, 25% of blacks, similar number of urban whites believe that HIV was created in a government lab to kill poor people, especially black ones. That's a fact. Washington Post ran a piece on it in 2005. So I, I don't think there's a term for the belief that the government created AIDS to kill you other than crazy conspiracy theory. You know, um, yeah, that I think that sums it up in one sentence. The biggest conspiracy theory in the USA right now is that there is some hidden, subtle form of racism, which can be separated from poverty itself, which, of course, is due partly to past racism. But that is the reason for every single gap in performance between blacks and whites and between Hispanics and whites, but this somehow doesn't affect Asians or Nigerians or Arabs at all. I mean, and this is something many people believe. Like, you'll look at SAT test scoring gaps, and someone will say, well, we really have a problem with the cultural bias of the verbal section of this test. And you'll point out that the top scorers are Asians and West Africans and Jews and Arabs. Mina would be that final category. And then it, there's just silence, and they'll go back to saying, but the Black people. So it's become what Gad Sad would call a mind virus, this sort of incessant belief that the the two explanations for performance are what would it be racism and genetic inferiority i mean that's that's one of the stupidest ideas i've ever heard but it is extremely prevalent and yes i think i think that's that's a belief at the same level as the qanon right i mean the the reptoid pedophile world leadership are controlling us from behind the scenes but Trump is the hero knight sent to fight them. The beliefs are very much on the same parallel, that there's this group of bigoted, cannibalistic creatures beyond mortal ken that are controlling you. And the reality is just study for the damn test. The groups that score poorly, Blacks, Southern whites, certainly, certainly Latinos, I mean, I, you can just track how much time those groups spend in the classroom. I love all three of them. That's who I went to high school with. But it, it's pretty obvious that Korean kids hit the books a little more than anyone I just mentioned. You don't need to invoke these crazy specters, but people like to. There's something about the human mortal condition that makes people do this, and minorities are no less prone to this than whites. Well, let's drill down a little bit deeper on, on BLM here, and it seems that they've got seven demands. Um, convict and ban Trump from future political office, expel Republican members of Congress who attempt to overturn the election and uh, incited a white supremacist attack, uh, launch a full investigation into the ties between white supremacy and the Capitol Police, law enforcement and the military, permanently ban Trump from all digital media platforms, defund the police, uh, don't let the coup be used as an uh, excuse to crack down on our movement, uh, Pass the Breathe Act. So why why are BLM so obsessed with Donald Trump? Uh, is he really the biggest threat to the black community in 2022? Uh, Jason Riley, no no relation, has, has written that it's highly possible that Donald Trump was the best thing to happen to black unemployment in quite some time. Um, has the organization finally jumped the shark? Well, I mean, first of all, uh, I'm in that book. Jason Riley wrote a book called The Black Boom, and he wrote from the perspective of a very elite columnist and financial background guy. He writes for The Wall Street Journal, and he wanted to bring in some academics, one, and some think tank guys, too, to respond to his pieces. And I'm one of about four people in that book. I don't, I don't totally agree with him, but I think he, he's on to something. Uh, something we forget, by the way, when people talk about, you know, how do we 
how did Trump lose to Biden, all of this, and then you get to conspiracy theories on the right. Somehow we seem to already almost be forgetting COVID-19. I mean, Trump struck me personally as a blustering idiot. I mean, I've met a lot of guys like him on you know bullpen floors. I, I didn't like a lot of his public behavior, but nonetheless, he was not an ineffective domestic sector business president. And the unemployment rates for Blacks, for lower income people of all races, Latinos, women, were at their lowest ever through about three months before COVID hit. So th this whole question, when people play these idiotic numbers games, like, well, the economy dropped 14% of, of its value in Trump's last year, that's because his last year happened to coincide with the COVID-19 pandemic. That's why he lost. That's why the economy dropped. So yeah, I, I don't think Trump was an especially bad president for Black Americans at all. I also don't think Trump was a racist. I mean, in anything but the individual Archie Bunker sense that a lot of my Black uncles maybe perhaps but when you read through Trump's statements, one of the things that strikes me is that he doesn't seem to have a problem with Black Americans at all. Um, I've never, other than him calling a couple of cities dirty or rat infested, and that's not untrue in the case of Baltimore. I mean, I've been to Baltimore. There's a movie called Rat Movie about that sector of Baltimore. You know, I mean, so it's just at a certain point, you have to stop denying your city's problems. Like in Kentucky, we get redneck jokes because there are a lot of rednecks in Kentucky. It's a great state. I nothing against rednecks, but it's just it's the same thing. Like Baltimore is a tough urban area. It's where they filmed the wire. The, the excuses were bizarre. Um, but the, the point that I'm making is Trump made comments about illegal immigrants. He made comments about a range of people in mostly poor Caucasian countries. I mean, if you talk about the Middle East, you're talking about upper Central America, so on down the line. I don't like everything. Bad hombres. Yeah, but he's, ta he's talking about Mexico. There, there are a lot of different things here. First of all, as a black guy, most Hispanics strike me personally as white. I don't say that as in any kind of racist format. I don't have a problem with white people. But it is worth noting when people talk about massive demographic change in the USA that we've heard this exact argument before. Uh, something like 66% of Hispanics check the white-only option on the census. Again, this isn't good or bad. But this sort of claim, uh, I don't really see those as whites. Those aren't real whites. This was made about Irishmen. This was made about Italians. This has been made pretty consistently throughout U.S. history. So you can have a position on white-black conflict in the USA while having a position on immigration that involves the recognition that most of these people are going to join the U.S. mainstream within two generations. And that's certainly what we see with Hispanics, by the way. Um, figures that show Hispanics dramatically underperforming, say, Blacks or Natives, um, I would assume that in almost every case, not that Blacks and Natives aren't doing better these days, that is a first-generation effect. You're not going to score very well on the standardized boards in English if you don't speak English. So, But at any rate, regardless of whether you think Mr. Trump's comments about Caucasian Hispanics were acceptable, I didn't hear a lot of that stuff about specifically Black Americans. Trump himself was actually the force behind the Platinum Plan, which is targeted specifically at Black communities. Again, not, not the hugest fan of Trump, but the idea that he was a wild, extraordinary racist seemed to me to be just, again, the squidding. It's what you always say. When someone's making effective points against a left-wing political movement, they are a racist. That's what a racist often is in internet conversation. It's someone making effective political points against a left-wing movement. Uh, why did Black Lives Matter freak out so much about Trump? I'm a long, rambly talker, so I'll actually answer the question. Um, I think because Trump represented something very dangerous to them, which is just people that, excuse the language, stop giving a fuck. One of the things, I recently prepped a book called Alt-Wrongs, because in fact, I'm an anti-racist member of you know the center right. 
Uh, and to do that, I actually looked through uh, American Renaissance, V-Dare, the sites on the hard, hard inter-racist right. And one of the things that struck me, was, I disagree with them on almost everything. Um, I mean, ending merit immigration and that kind of nonsense. But one of the things that struck me was that the people writing for these sites, like John Derbyshire, Peter Bremelo, sometimes Ann Coulter, Pat Buchanan, weren't Nazi fanatics. Uh, more than half of them were in interracial relationships. What seemed to have happened is that a lot of people just hadn't changed their positions between the 1990s and today, opposing gay marriage, for example, and the positions that they held had become considered increasingly extreme year by year. Because we're becoming increasingly more censorious year by year in kind of that mainstream Twitter and Instagram online space. Louis Farrakhan, a black man's been deplatformed, Trump himself's been deplatformed, so on down the line. A Tucker Carlson is not on Twitter. So I think that Trump was someone who had his own platform and would just stand up and say, these things I'm supposed to say are complete BS. Obviously, low-end illegal immigration in the United States is not a good thing for either whites or blacks, as we currently define those terms. This is correct. Um, obviously, there's a very high crime rate associated with many illegal immigrant communities. This is correct. So on down the line, he also said a lot of brash, stupid stuff. But I think if Trump had been a stupid, incoherent racist, there would have actually been less of a backlash. The ultimate danger to Black Lives Matter and to similar movements is people just saying the emperor has no clothes. What you guys are saying is stupid. Interracial crime makes up 3% of crime and it's 80% black on white. Shut up, kid. That would end the movement. Corporations just laughing and not taking the meeting would end the movement. And Trump, the big 6'3", blonde, Caucasian dude with the bright red power tie hanging down to his nuts because he didn't wear them correctly, <laughs> that, was, that was very <laughs> symbolic of someone that might just laugh at these people. And that's why there was such an entrenched, angry backlash. And it often didn't even make sense. I mean, one of Trump's best friends on his cabinet was Ben Carson. He was a black doctor. You know, the argument that these people were a bunch of incoherent Nazis never had any real, except for Miller, maybe. I don't know the man. I don't want to insult him. But I don't, I didn't really see too many people on the Trump cabinet that would be associated with alt-right political views or anything as a, someone who studies the movement. Like, who are you talking about? Mad Dog Mattis, Jared Kushner? You know, so it, it was just, this guy is dangerous, he's loud, he says the offensive, so we're going to shut him down. I think that's that's the cause of the frenzy. In 2020, uh, there was a serious national push to defund the police. There were some people who said that this slogan meant redistribution of funds to focus more on, on, on social situations. But there were people, including that piece from the New York Times with the outrageous headline, yes, we mean literally abolish the police who said that, no, they actually meant abolish the police force entirely. So what is the idea behind the defund abolish movement? How does it differ from traditional policing? Well, I mean, I think that that's a very well phrased question. But I think it has a pretty obvious answer. I mean, the way police abolition differs from traditional policing is that police abolition involves getting rid of the police. I mean, so to me, one of the advantages that the academic left has in the power games that are going on right now, they're sometimes miscalled the culture war, is that they have all the English teachers on their side. And that sounds like a joke, but it's really not. They understand techniques like how to enroll as, for example, a Wikipedia editor or an online fact checker, present yourself as neutral and unbiased, and then begin slowly editing and changing definitions. Um, like, for example, James Lindsay, who I'm casual friends with, he has a lot of fun on Twitter, but also makes lot, some fairly good points. Um, but he today just was posting images of what Wikipedia pages used to be headlined. And it was very effective because he didn't say anything. He didn't make any of his jokes or like 
talk about people's mothers or any of that internet crap. It was, but it was just like one was cultural in 2015. The title of the page was cultural Marxism. And it referred to the very well-known fact that the Frankfurt school of philosophers had tried to apply communist models to a broader set of social issues. So the idea was that race relations mirror the pattern of oppression in communism, right? You have the bourgeois, which oppresses the proletariat, and the systems designed by and for the bourgeois. So in America, you have the white who oppresses the black and brown, and the systems designed by and for the white, yada, yada, yada. But I mean, so in 2015, the page just reflected what everyone knows and is called cultural Marxism. Today, it's called something like, you know, you guys might correct me if I'm wrong, but the cultural Marxist anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. So that's that's an example of how you get behind the scenes. You're a graduate student at a mid-level. You become a Wikipedia editor. You get senior privileges. You edit the page. Now no one can ever change it again. That's what the word means if you're a 17-year-old kid that doesn't have any other dictionary. So this is actually a pretty serious problem. My response to it is just not to play the word games and to assume that when a smart person says something, it means relatively close to facial value. So the defund the police thing, under any reasonable definition of defunding the police, because doubling police funding but diverting 33% of that to social workers isn't defunding the police, uh, under any reasonable definition, defunding the police isn't just an asinine idea. And I mean, people have been pretty open about the idea that they want to do this. I mean, you're referring to the New York Times full back page op-ed that said, yes, we mean literally defund the police. Uh, I took them at their word. What do I think? It's a bad idea. You know, we also, it's possible to play games with numbers as well as words. And this is this is more my space. So I, re I wrote a piece in Quillet where I pointed out the obvious that during the year when people were talking about defunding the police, crime had skyrocketed. In 2020, I mean, when the George Floyd riots began, when police made a conscious decision not to break them in many cities, when um, the approach to many crimes became frankly more lax, we saw murders hit 20,000 for the first time since 1994. So that, that is the effect of police defunding. And a lot of people responded to me. I mean, I, I get a fair amount of public attention, and this was treated in the way, say, a minor journal article from someone less publicly obnoxious might have been, and that people started responding to it and so on. Um, and, and I was lightly making fun of myself there. Most of the responses were in pretty good faith. But people engaged with it seriously. They asked, is this true? But the, the critique that was made was, well, Riley is saying that the defunding of law enforcement is what caused this surge in crime. But in fact, most of the defunding didn't take effect until the next year. So you're kind of seeing this numerical response to the point. The problem with that, though, is that there's an easier way to track police behavior, and that's just police stops. And what you find is that every time there's a move toward the idea of police defunding, prior to that happening, or the idea of minimizing the police or community policing, prior to that happening, you see the police just engaging with fewer people. This was called the Ferguson effect just a few years ago. The cops stop fewer people, they pull over fewer cars, they do fewer pat-downs. And every time this happens, this is what, in my opinion, caused the surge in crime in 2020, reduced police engagement. Um, every time it happens, you see increased crime. Uh, going back to 2017, I believe, so this has been going on for a while. I mean, you had Trayvon Martin and you had riots and disturbances. You had Michael Brown, you had riots and disturbances. This is around 2014 here. Then you go forward through the full Ferguson era, you know, conclusions of the legal process, Freddie Gray, you saw riots and disturbances. By about 2017, the Chicago Defender newspaper ran this incredible headline that read police stops down 90% while crime skyrockets. 
And I think that that is what you are invariably going to see. You can argue that the money hasn't been taken away quite yet or something like this. But if the cops are being told not to make stops, and if they're also fully aware that if they do stop and unfortunately shoot or bruise an African-American man, career may be over, jail time may be in the offing, you're going to see less effective policing. And the people that suffer are going to be the residents of poor neighborhoods, mostly minorities. I, well, I completely agree with you. It, to, me, to us, I think it seems fairly obvious. But I have a solution, which you can co-sign if you want. I think the police should be a subscription service like Netflix. <laughs> Call it like Police Plus. Like I'll pay because I like my stuff, but you don't have to pay if you don't want. But uh, I don't know. But then you'd have to like police. You got to police yourself if you don't want to pay. I guess like they did in Chaz in Portland. You think that'd work out or? Well, I mean, as I recall, something like seven men, mostly black, got shot at the borders of Chaz due to their anarchic uh, living arrangements. So yeah, but no. that was probably that was probably the, I don't know um, the white the white um, white supremacist supremacy. That's what I'm. Yeah, that's what I meant. Not actually. Remember that people tried to argue this during the George Floyd riots. I mean, they there was one of the riots where they found one boogaloo boy who was there to party with like his left wing anarchist girlfriend. So the narrative for a while became right-wing provocateurs are actually setting fires and fighting the police. So never underestimate the power of the it's racism that made me do it narrative. Um, but I, not being infected by this particular mind virus, don't actually think that there are white supremacist snipers inside Chaz. I think that a mixed group of white and black thugs ran Chaz and they proved incapable of providing basic social services to a funny degree. Thus the pictures of people and screwing in the street and destroying flower gardens and at one point they tore down the portland elk statue and they attempted to replace it but they didn't know how to build the statue so it was just a stack of brown boxes with some fluffy horns on top to replace the elk and i mean you really get an impression looking at this stuff and the stuff on the right too like the guy shirtless with the buffalo horns oh, the, on the, the, the q shaman <laughs> yeah it's savagery one of the major mistakes a lot of people make especially in academia is assuming that savagery is some awkward thing lost in the past that we've now gotten by. Savagery is the default state of humans, especially males. I mean, so when, whenever the law relaxes for a period of more than a few weeks, you see it. Like, I mean, the, the Capitol riot, there was a guy literally standing in the middle of the national Capitol, you know, with a war bonnet on. Guys are holding <laughs> spears. I mean, it is what it is. I mean, that's that is what human society would descend into Lord of the Flies style. That's if someone... we were... If, if someone, the, if someone the, dookied on a, on a, on a desk. As well. <laughs> yeah. Someone crapped on, I think Nancy Pelosi's desk. Like, yeah, I, I'm sure people are doing that. I'm sure people are having sex there too. Like, wouldn't you, if you brought like a right wing party girl to that location, like Definitely. it's just, Definitely. that's, that is what that is to some extent, what human nature is. It's to understand gang violence in LA. All you need to do is read the history of, you know, Scotland in the 1600s. And that sounds like one of those things that a complete pompous ass would say, but it's also true. I mean, like the small bands of young men raiding into one another's valleys. You show balls or baraka by, you know, coming back with one ear or by painting on the wall of someone's barn or by stealing a flag that they won in some previous conflict. It's exactly the same thing. It's an extraordinarily common. It's what you see from actual G-ster gangbangers through the Proud Boys, through the Boogaloo Boys, over to the left-wing Antifa guys. It's the same shit. 
You just can't tolerate it in a city. You can't have those four groups fighting in the streets with their bats. But Wilfred, it, it, that it, that Capitol Hill stuff also worked because AOC is still shook to this day. <laughs> yes. You know? AOC, that, that actually to me was one of the funniest, something that genuinely annoys me, but is also funny, is people attempting to take on real psychological trauma they don't feel. No, I actually have had a pretty intense and sometimes traumatic life. I've dated, been friends with a bunch of people in the mental health profession, so I don't sympathize with it, but it can be amusing. Like the AOC story, AOC wasn't in that building. She was in another well-guarded building, or if I recall DC, about seven-eighths of a mile away. So like when I first heard her story, like I thought I was going to be raped and so on. I mean, you had to think about it like, well, maybe she would have been. I mean, she's one of the ultimate symbols of, you know, obnoxious, elite, out-of-touch government. Could she have been brutalized by some of these big bearded guys? But then you read the story and she wasn't there. She was a mile away. There's transport that could have taken her out of that building. And you realize, oh, this is just bullshit. She's just saying this to give herself a piece of this experience. Um, Without ever, and I don't want to criticize the kid. I mean, just having friends that were shot at would be a traumatic experience. But I mean, this, there's some of this with David Hogg as well, for example, with a lot of activist types. Many of Jesse Jackson. Many people who enter prominent activism were people that were at the scene of a damaging, disturbing incident, but weren't really themselves involved. So David Hogg was a Parkland student when the shooting at Parkland happened. But my understanding is that the people shot were not close friends of his. Parkland is a giant campus. And Hogg himself wasn't there at the time, if I remember the storyline correctly. I mean, that, that doesn't mean he the thing didn't upset him. He probably knew the people that were injured. But someone who actually was shot that day, I tend to suspect, would have done a great deal of time working on their rehab, you know, getting back to a place of mental health normalcy. It would be my guess that mostly people who are aware of the incident and not directly involved in it that would have become activists campaigning under that banner. And I'm trying to be as sensitive as possible with this, and I think we all know what I mean to some extent. But like Jesse Jackson was the guy who was five or six guys away from Martin Luther King when King was shot. Jackson was in no danger. Only King was the target. What Jackson did was smear himself with Martin Luther King's bloody shirt. This is apparently an actually true story. And give interviews covered in blood talking about how he had come near death. Um, it's probably the best American example of literally waving the bloody shirt. And it's hard to have a great deal of respect for that. So the AOC thing, I mean, again, AOC was in absolutely no danger during the storming of the Capitol. It, I suppose there are people that could try to defend her and say, well, there might be underground tunnels in the city or something. But that, that's a very typical story of a kind we see a lot these days, kind of a trauma assumption. Well, our, our uh, Australian version uh, from the George Bush era is you'll talk to people and they'll go, you know, uh, I was due to fly out to uh, New York that day. And then that's sort of our dumb equivalent you know, of, of trying to bolt yourself on to, uh, on, onto something, something big. Yeah, I mean, it's just... and. Again, some of these people, I mean, like there, there were Parkland activist students that were, I'm sure, horrified, terrified that day. You, you want to balance between feeling some sympathy and also looking at how realistic each individual story is. In the Australian case, I mean, the planes that hit the Twin Towers weren't planes from Australia. I mean, they were they? Um, I don't remember. I don't think the people who, who like, it's, it's always the same type of story. They're always like, you know, I was in New York that day. And you go, where, where were you? And they're like, upstate. And then you go, oh, that, oh, yeah, okay. that, that's, so, <laughs> yeah, like I'm, I'm actually trying to be more sympathetic than I am, but I mean, 
the planes that hit the Twin Towers weren't from Australia. Like I'm from <laughs> Chicago, which is a city that's smaller than New York. And I mean, O'Hare is one of the busier American airports. We get what, 4,000 planes in a day? So just saying I might have flown into America that day, isn't even into New York that day, it's just an utterly meaningless statement. It's like, oh, well, then you would have had a one in 8,000 as opposed to a zero in 8,000 chance of being killed. All right, well. There's that dumb and dumber line. Happen. There's a chance, you know? <laughs> yes. Well, well. This, is, this is the same thing with like the COVID survivor movement. I, I don't know if you know this guy, but the comedian Constantine Kissin has had a lot of fun with this. Like he got COVID. Now this guy is like a 35 year old, very fit, like Ukrainian man. He weighs like 160 pounds. He had no risk of dying from COVID. But every time he does his comedy show with Francis Foster, he'll say, like, as a COVID survivor, I introduced this piece of COVID news with a heavy heart. And it's just it's, again, that assumed trauma. Like your chance as a young male athlete of dying of COVID is zero point zero 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 whatever. But there's this hysteria in our society where people really are saying in young upper middle class life, like, yeah, I've been exposed to the bug Omicron. You know, it's like, OK, so you had a cold. <laughs> Fair enough. But that post vaccination Omicron COVID. All right, buddy. So maybe maybe actually having challenges to face would uh, would lead to a little less of that. Uh, I wouldn't mind circling back if we could to hate crime hoaxes. Um, now, Jussie Smollett is is probably the most well known of the hate crime hoaxes, especially here in Australia. And I want to spend a little bit more time on him because it seems from the outside, at least, that he was quite a successful actor. Uh, perhaps you could give us a, a short blow-by-blow -blow account of the circumstances around the case. Uh, the 2 a.m. Subway sandwich, the noose around the neck, the the the, the MAGA hat-wearing assailants. Sure. So I will say I was on Facebook the day before this happened. I wasn't heavily active on Twitter for about a six-month period around this. But I said, like, guys, I'll bet anyone 50 bucks within a month will know this didn't happen. And that's that's still on record there. I mean, it, so when I heard the story, my first reaction was, this is a ridiculous lie. And there's so many reasons that make that overwhelmingly likely to be the case. Um, the Streeterville neighborhood in Chicago, where I have numerous friends, or at least did until people started moving to the suburbs three or four years ago, is the young professional neighborhood in Chicago. It's easily at least 25% Black, Asian, et cetera. It's easily at least 10% gay. There are no MAGA hats visible ever in the area. There also are a fair number of little nightlife venues there where tough guys from the rest of Chicago can be found. You're, you're not going to walk around carrying a noose, wearing a Trump hat, and be okay. But so the, the original claim was that Jussie Smollett was walking through this hyper-urban area, and he's doing this at 2 a.m. because he wants to get a tuna salad sandwich from Subway. And he's spotted by two guys who apparently no one has picked a fight with in this bar district, despite the fact that they're wearing MAGA hats, they're wearing patriotic ski masks, they're carrying a gallon bottle of bleach, and they're carrying a noose, all right, knotted rope noose. So they see Jussie Smollett and they yell, oh, that's that nigger from Empire. Because Empire, which is a show about gay rappers, is clearly number one among deep rural Trump supporters, <laughs> right? So these two big Caucasian fighting men attack Jussie, and he beats up both of them, or at least drives them off. But one of them tosses the noose around his neck. This whole time he's holding the sandwich, by the way. The sandwich made it through and is visible in pictures of Jesse's apartment. So he fights these two guys off. He goes inside. And instead of just saying, hey, I got in a street fight, I'm going to take a shower and eat. He dithers for a while, takes some pictures, calls the police, and the noose is around his neck when the police arrive. By the way, this is also like the third time this has happened to Jesse Smollett within a one-week period. I mean, he previously claimed that 
the filming, the studio in Chicago where he was filming had been sent pictures of him like being hanged, vicious letters, viscerally dismissing Jesse Smollett. I have no doubt that all of this stuff is fake. Um, that has not been proven, I will note for legal reasons, but I, I think we all know what probably happened. So Smollett says all this stuff happened. He was viciously attacked yet again, more racism in Center City, Chicago, and the cops get called, and that's the start of the collapse, the the beginning of the end. Yeah, I, I believe Jussie only served a fraction of his prison sentence. Do you know why that is? And and what message do you think that sends to the wider community when a financially privileged criminal gets off so lightly? First of all, Jesse Smollett didn't really serve any of his, uh, and he, would, he wouldn't have gone to prison. He would have gone to county jail. Like, so Smollett's sentence itself was not exactly, you know, archetypal brutality. Smollett was sentenced to 150 days in the local county jug uh, after being charged with five felony counts. And I mean, Smollett had done a whole range of things. He'd made up the story for months. He'd lied about it in open court. He'd lied about it to the judge, so on down the line. Uh, so he got 150 days. And then the day after he was locked up in jail, his sentence was commuted until the end of his appeal, which will take years. And my understanding from sources on the ground, from things I've heard, is that this is because there was a, and this just doesn't stop, right? There was a threat to Smollett an unknown person called the jail's number from an untraceable, probably burner phone and said that they were going to beat or rape Smollett. Now, obviously this person couldn't be in jail because you don't normally have untraceable phones inside of jail. So someone apparently reached out to a number, I would assume Smollett and a few others knew of and made these threats. And as a result of this, in part, Smollett was let go. The, the actual rationale was that it made no sense to keep him in jail while he appealed because the sentence was so short that he could finish up his sentence before the appeal was concluded. But that generally, you can compensate for that with cash or something. I mean, just treating this as a 100% release from jail would mean letting most people in jail go. I mean, the longest you can be in jail as opposed to prison is one year. So the argument didn't make a lot of sense to me, but Smollett, who's obviously a member of the Chicago Black and overall elite, who's obviously friendly with the district attorney, as we've seen before. Um, as soon as that kind of excuse came up, well, he's being threatened and he's a short-term prisoner, Smollett was released. So his actual time in jail was something like two days. Have other hate crime hoaxes been convicted? And uh, do you know what their sentences have been? What we find is that there are very rarely convictions in hate crime hoax cases. Part of this is because it's very hard even to identify whether or not a case is a hoax. So there are people I genuinely respect, like Barry Levin, who researched this within criminology more specifically than I do. I research a lot of things. And they argue that there's a fairly low, like the cases I describe are mostly real, but there's a fairly low rate of hate crime hoaxing. If you look at the 7,000 cases that, of hate crime that are reported in a typical year. We can discuss that. We can discuss definitions. Um, I would argue that the usual definition, which is a case is only a hoax, if it is absolutely demonstrably proven to be false, then the police department that originally reported it says that it's false, which departments obviously prefer not to do. And it then turns out it was committed by the initial person who claimed to be the victim rather than a third party hoaxer. So, I mean, you can, I think that's way too specific. We can debate this kind of academic stuff, but the more serious issue when it comes to saying the rate of hate crime hoaxing is low is that we don't know what happens in the majority of hate crime cases. I was able to look at a full-on data set from the state of California 
at the time I was writing the book. And I found that the conviction rate in hate crime cases is only 6%. Uh, I would argue the hoaxing rate is a bit higher if you've read hoax. So in many cases, if someone paints a swastika on a wall, there's really no evidence as to whether this is actual neo-Nazis, which is the only total non-hoax real category to some extent, whether it's frat guys playing a joke, including potentially frat guys from the Jewish house, whether it is juveniles or whether it is Jews or blacks or something faking, attempting to create an atmosphere of racism. So in most cases, you just see the swastika. And of course, the hysterical media narrative is, well, there go the Nazis again. But I mean, we just had a case like this in the UK and South Jersey, where they actually had cameras on the building. And it turned out almost immediately to be like four juveniles who played what we'd call soccer football together, who one of them was black, if I recall correctly. So it's I would suspect that happens all the time. It's just you don't know. But even in cases that are exposed as hoaxes, and this is more to your point, certainly on a college campus or in a big left-leading city, it's very unlikely that anything happens. I didn't break this down data point by data point, but I will say that, um, I mean, in the college cases, it's, it's very difficult to think of someone who got charged with more than filing a false police report. What you often see, as in, for example, what I think of as the Bowling Green racial fight case, is a case just go into the unclosed cold case file. Like for some reason, we didn't find the perpetrators uh, and we'd prefer not to accuse one of our own students of a crime. So we're just gonna leave this here for perpetuity. Nothing happened, unclosed permanently. Yeah, well, it's hard to know what's in Jesse Smollett's heart and mind. And unless he comes clean, we may never know his true motivation. But do you have any accounts or perhaps confessions from other hate crime hoaxes as to their motivation? Is it purely self-serving or is there a wider political goal? Well, I, I think that there are two primary motivations. I mean, one is the sort of banal, ordinary motivation that underlies most crime. So one of the one of the cases I reported on for the book is the burning of a bar called Velvet Ultra Lounge in Chicago. And this is one of the first hate crime hoaxes that crossed really crossed my mind's eye that I was forced to pay attention to. This was a club in inner suburban Oak Park where I knew people that danced. It was a venue popular sort of bisexual college women and thus with many other people. They had pretty frequent gay nights. It was often seen as a gay bar. Um, a lot of ferns in the place, very hipster kind of urban ambiance. And the bar was burnt to the ground. And these, these terrible gay slurs, fag and worse, were painted throughout the ruined bar. And when members of the Chicago grad student community saw this pleasant place set on fire, burnt to the ground, I mean, the universal idea was, well, this is, this is obvious hate. This is homophobia. You know, hate has no place in the windy, so on. Um, it turned out that what actually happened was that the bar owner owed a bunch of people money, which isn't always the best idea in Chicago, even today, and apparently set his own bar on fire to get an insurance payout that was in the multiple hundreds of thousands. So you see that fairly often. You saw a similar case recently involving an NFL football player, a former NFL great, who set his restaurant on fire because of tax issues and budgetary issues and so on. And again, he wrote nigger, or I guess you're supposed to say the N-word, this kind of thing throughout, throughout the place. But I think that the what you see more often on college campuses is a desire to make some kind of political point, either to identify yourself as a trendy victim who can't be attacked, or to, you often hear language like call attention to the real problem or to the bigger problem. 
So I think the first is self-explanatory. You want to make yourself a victim and get a small parade through campus. The second is a bit more psychological in terms of how you would describe it. And I'll, I'll just give an example. At Key and U in New Jersey, good, reputable, kind of mid-sized college, a student was holding, a protest leader was holding a rally against racism on campus. And the rally was apparently pretty half-assed. There weren't a lot of people there. There'd been no real racial tensions at Kean, which again is in urban Jersey, there no problems. So this person left, they gave the stage to kind of their secondary speaker. They went into, as I understand, a library, set up a Twitter account that's called Against Blacks at Kean, and started tweeting out these crazy things. And there was some sophistication to this. I think they were timestamped as not coming from that exact day. But they were tweeting out, one of the tweets was, I'm going to kill all the Blacks at Kean, if I recall correctly. So now you have something to rally about. This person then went back on stage, I think at that rally, although another rally was also held, and said, well, look, this is what Kean College is, you know, holding up the bloody phone. And I think that is an extremely common campus or blue city motivation. Let's point out what the problem is. One of the reasons for that, obviously, is that pointing out what the problem is is often going to lead to significant compensation. I mean, on a college campus, virtually every incident like this is followed by a lengthy period of soul searching, where the possibility of hiring more minority faculty or diversity coordinators or building some kind of justice center is at least considered. So I, I don't imagine that people who are good enough to be key U grad students, much less Ivy League ones, are unaware of that direct link between A and B. Well, Wilfred, I'm mindful of your time here, so we'll have to. Uh, I'll just want to pull back for the last couple of questions, if that's okay. Uh, so, almost all of our guests exhibit moral courage in their day-to-day -day lives, and although they might not recognise it, uh, do you have any advice for anyone listening who's struggling with perhaps speaking out against nonsense? And because telling the truth has real costs, as we know, people are quite frankly afraid to lose jobs and friends. Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that, that even has to be asked indicates what a localized and specific, although influential, poison all of this is. Like the entire idea of wokeness, which has a three-part definition that I've given in City Journal and probably won't rattle on about for 15 minutes here, but essentially the idea that the society that looks facially neutral is set up to oppress, one. The evidence of that oppression is any group performance differences, two. And three, the solution is equity, absolute proportional representation, regardless of performance. That's kind of the big fish that all the, the remoras are kind of grafted onto. But this idea is very specifically something that you see among younger, mostly white, although some African-American, African descent, but urban, middle to upper middle class, younger people. And it's within that demographic group that people are terrified to talk which is problematic because you expect that demographic group to be pretty influential when it comes to shaping the next round of things in society. At some point, the Bidens and Trumps and Pelosi's and McConnell's here in the USA, all of whom are 97, you know, are going to, you know, going to pass beyond the pearlies and the next wave of people will have to take up the torch and hopefully they'll have become a little less insane than the, the representatives I'm seeing today. But anyway, so that that is a real phenomenon. The fear is not something people are making up. What advice would I give? Um, I think, first of all, fight selectively. My advice to people definitely isn't constantly say things like the ones that I say in public at work. 
Um, I'm paid to be a sort of center-right provocative speaker, whereas you're paid to be an electrical engineer or whatever. So use common sense. Um, there's a lot to be said for anonymity on the internet. I mean, very often someone, Kendi himself will do this, will say something that is perhaps a bit banal, and there'll be a thousand comments from these smart Anon graduate students just making fun of it. And I think when people look at that, regardless of whether they'll admit it in public, they're aware of what reality is. Um, for that matter, DM some of the other people that are aware of what reality is. Exchange jokes for a couple of days. What's your actual name? You'll find most of them live near you, certainly on Facebook and the like, if not Twitter. But I mean, so don't necessarily go out picking fights, but remain involved in discourse, uh, however, at whatever level of publicity you are comfortable with. Seek out accurate information. There are a ton of fairly good sources. I mean, their entire websites like Free Black Thought that are just lists of heterodox thinkers. They focus mostly on African-Americans, but I mean, certainly as you go down the links, you start seeing the original European, you know, inspirators for these people, you know, so stay active, be aware of what reality is. Most data, like the crime facts I just given, I've just given today can be obtained directly from the USA or Australian or UK government or from activist groups on either side of the aisle in those countries. The crime data is the Bureau of Justice Statistics or BJS report. Um, oh, another thing that I would say is support the many groups that are trying to fight back to sanity. This is something I might've wanted to emphasize early on, but one of the things that we're seeing right now is a backlash from people that are themselves stable, normal, within that middle-class range, not racist, but just sick of all the bullshit. I mean, that's, for example, FAIR, started by uh, Barry Weiss and Bjorn Bortnig in the USA, to some extent in Europe. I'm one of their advisory board members. Uh, 1776 Unites, which is specifically the Black business and social science communities response to the nonsensical 1619 project. And I mean, I'm sure there are many like these FIRE, um, Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education, which will work with UK and Australian universities, as well as American ones, Canadian ones as well. So get active with one of these groups and get yourself a base of support if you are attacked, but also just be aware of what's going on, watch the group grow, see how many people agree with you. Those would be basically the three to four points. I mean, be selective in picking your fights, but you know, have your presence out in the debate world and engage at the level you're comfortable with too. Participate in the groups that are pursuing obvious sanity. And some of this is stuff that I thought would never have to be said. Like Colin Wright's Reality's Last Stand is literally an academic blog, probably going to become a journal dedicated to proving the point that biological sex is real. Um, it seems almost like a joke, but that's currently an idea that's radically under attack. So, I mean, it turns out that people from across the range of sciences can discuss what this is. You know, how, do, how does sex operate in salamanders, for example, is, as I understand, an upcoming piece. So uh, that may not be everyone's cup of tea. It's uh, Colin's a brilliant guy, but that, that's pretty specific and technical. But stay involved. Um, and three, just give yourself access to accurate information. One of the saddest things that I read frequently in the U.S. press is that an incredible number of people believe that both CNN and Fox are unbiased. So a lot of people are listening to kind of the emperor's media talk about his clothes. Um, go to the original, go to the source, go to the library, be aware of what reality is and say as much about it as you can. Well, that's uh, that's great advice there, Wilfred. Um, we, we like to finish uh, all of our interviews with the same question, and we'd like to know what you're reading right now. 
Well, I'm reading, I mean, I'm reading about 30 books right now because I'm writing a book um, about, there's a, there's a famous old book, uh, 12 Lies My Teacher Told Me, and I might be writing the response 30 years later after the woke curriculum that guy suggested. Are they telling the truth now? Who's to say? But as part of this uh, upcoming writing project, I am, um, I'm reading a range of different things. The book I'm reading right now is The Vision of the Anointed by Thomas Sowell which is one of those classic kind of recent past, but always, always worth a read every couple of years books. I downloaded it last night because I, I really want to, really want to read it. It's one of, it's literally one of the best books of all time might be overrated. I mean, their books go back a long time. I don't know if the ancient Persians would agree with me, but it's certainly one of the most important books on the West in the past 50 years that you can read, in my opinion. Um, and the, uh, the anointed class identified by Sol, he says very specifically the, the point that I've made here, that higher education has been to some extent ideologically captured. So at the upper end, we're winding up with this group that's almost entirely, again, in the USA, coastal, urban, young, upper middle class, hard left. And this group has a series of ideas and proscriptions for society and we can empirically analyze whether or not these work better than the alternative, which he calls the tragic vision or the multivariate vision. And the book argues very convincingly that they don't. He looks at sort of the utopian idea of police reform and then what actually happened to crime in the 60s, 70s, and 80s in the USA and in parts of Europe. Uh, he looks at the utopian idea of what you might now call pleasure-based sex education, that children should learn these these complex ideas about sex and at that time the early stages of gender theory as versus just being sort of taught the mechanics and risks. And he again matches that and models that have a couple variables in them against say the pregnancy rate, what, what actually happened. So it's a fascinating book about why expert predictions are so often wrong when they come from this one class of people and why the wrongness is then never discussed. Why things like busing that were disastrous failures are still treated as successes today, years later. And it's a really interesting, and I think accurate evaluation of why this is. Because that's a phenomenon that we don't even think about, but that's been constant for decades. Wilfred, that, that, that's fantastic. Yeah, I just want to thank you for such a generous uh, and incredible interview. It's been so wonderful talking to you. And, um, uh, you know, I, we, we need to have you back. Finish that book, come back on the show, please. Absolutely. Well, I look forward to coming back at some point down the road. But for now, thanks for having me on, guys. Thanks so much.